This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Thursday, February 3rd, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Very glad to have you here every weekday from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. All the resources about the program right there, including our free podcast every day, on demand, no charge. GuyBensonShow.com. Here's what we have on tap. Busy show ahead. Katie Pavlich will be here coming up later on this hour. Dr. Marty McCary of Johns Hopkins on COVID restrictions, masks, and a study that just came out from his institution about lockdowns and the efficacy of lockdowns. Looking forward to that conversation. Congressman Tony Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, he will also be here. He just recently met with the chief of the U.S. Border Patrol. What did he learn and what was conveyed during that meeting? We'll ask him. And then Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, is going to be here, a member of the Judiciary Committee. I want to ask him about that Supreme Court vacancy and a mistake, a pretty significant historical flub made by Senator Schumer today, undermining an identity politics point that Schumer was trying to make. I feel like a staff member or a speechwriter is probably getting read the riot act today because Schumer looked awfully silly on the floor earlier. We will play you that audio ahead on the show. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you stats. 75.6 million cases all in. That's the official number in the United States during the pandemic. It's much, 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 much higher than that in reality. And just tracking the decline in cases, it's now down 49% compared to two weeks ago. So the bottom has fallen out of the Omicron wave, fortunately. And, of course, that was predictable. We knew that was coming. The death toll in the United States, deaths are rising as that Lagging indicator kicks in, tragically, 893,147 deaths in the United States, people who have died with or of COVID over the last nearly two years. The Dow is down today, down significantly, down 439 points at this hour, trading at 35,184, some weak earnings reports earlier. I know that there was sort of a scary preemptive jobs report projected yesterday so the market's uh, not in great shape so far here today well there's a number of things that i want to get to in this first hour and we will probably get reaction to all of it or at least some of it with katie pavlich coming up before i get to some domestic political stuff i actually am going to throw a bit of a curveball to the team here we were planning one thing but there's some new developments on this CNN scandal that I cannot resist raising with all of you. 
because uh, we addressed it, of course, yesterday on the show. We had Howie Kurtz here. We talked briefly with Ari Fleischer about it, the news that Jeff Zucker had resigned as the CNN president. And the reason that was given in the statement was this undisclosed affair he was having for years with his number two in command at CNN, a woman that he'd worked very closely with for many years, crossing multiple shows and platforms and networks. And they were number one and number two at CNN. They were sleeping together, and they didn't disclose it. And then in the process of the Chris Cuomo-related investigation, after Cuomo was fired and all the questions surrounding that imbroglio, this detail came to light about this relationship that they've been having. And because they didn't follow the guidance with HR and what they were supposed to do, that's a violation, and therefore he had to resign. That's at least the story that we were given publicly from Zucker. And we talked about it a bit yesterday and suggested that there was going to be more to it. I was on TV last night with Dagan McDowell, and we were, I think, also both in agreement that there's going to be another shoe to drop. Then this morning, I was on America's Newsroom, Fox News Channel, Bill Hemmer, Dana Perino. We were talking about this, and one point that I made is, look, I have no interest in talking about anyone's sex life on national television, especially Jeff Zucker's. Okay, no interest. And I really don't think it's the sexual liaison here that's the actual offense, at least from CNN's perspective. I think that this is being used as the reason given publicly for Zucker stepping down when the scandal is much more significant than that. And as I told Dana and Bill earlier, I don't know what the truth is. We are going to probably learn more and more about the truth because this investigation is playing out. People are leaking. Folks are now openly talking about what's happening inside CNN, what has been happening inside CNN. But one thing that I was confident of was that this was not, at its core, about an undisclosed adult consensual relationship between two people that had not been properly reported to HR. Even with the boss-subordinate dynamic at play, that, I don't think, is what precipitated the resignation. That is what I said earlier, and I'm feeling even more convinced of that now. Because I've seen some people, including at least one on-air person at CNN and some other sort of blue checkmark journalist people out there on social media saying, isn't it a shame, isn't it so puritanical that in today's day and age, In a country like this, someone would have to lose his job because he had a consensual sexual relationship with a fellow adult. Basically, he was just fired for love. Love is love. Why are we doing this? And look, if you want to take a libertarian view of it, I mean, that's fine. I know some people will say, well, did the affair start when one or both of them were married? There's some indication that that was the case. Uh, you know, that complicates things ethically, morally, etc. But just from the business standpoint, right, that vantage point, is it really something to lament? And it was just a romance that was not properly explained to the hires up and you know, you know, and, and the, the structure, the HR structure, and that's the reason. Isn't, isn't that an overreaction? Well, it might be if that were the underlying problem, which, again, I'm saying to you, I don't think that was the underlying problem. 
I think he survives that sort of mini tempest, especially if the ratings at CNN were better than they are. I mean, that's just been driven into the ground, that place. They decide to go all-in resistance. That was an editorial decision that they made on Trump. It worked relatively well for them while there was resistance to be done. They trashed whatever reputation they'd built before that as just sort of a down-the-middle news organization over the course of those years. And then all the resistance eyeballs, or many of them, are now gone or distracted or less interested. And that strategy, while a flash in the pan that was somewhat successful, never terribly successful, but somewhat, it's now a disaster and a debacle for them. If they had a better situation right now in terms of their ratings and other metrics, I think that maybe there's more of a cushion for a guy like Zucker. But now you've got the combination of scandal, multi-pronged scandal, plus very questionable actual performance, right, outcomes. It's not really a great spot to be in, and now he's out. The name Cuomo keeps coming up in all of it. And I'm going to get to this new development here in a second that is pretty amazing. Chris Cuomo, longtime anchor at CNN, just a newsman, just a newsman, put him on in prime time. He, of course, is the younger brother of the disgraced, resigned former governor of New York who covered up a bunch of nursing home deaths from COVID, messed with the data, sold a whole book based on a phony premise, all of that. And then, of course, all the sexual harassment stuff as well that really brought him down because journalists and liberals couldn't really nail him to the wall on lying about COVID and manipulating data and the horrible cover-up of the nursing home deaths because they were so invested in Andrew Cuomo as the anti-Trump on the pandemic. And allowing that to be what brought down Andrew Cuomo, that they couldn't allow it. They were still too emotionally stuck on Cuomo being their guy and not Trump on the pandemic. It was the harassment stuff where they finally said, okay, enough is enough. Chris Cuomo, in his capacity as a journalist, was behind the scenes like doing digging and oppo research and basically crisis communications behind the scenes for his brother while publicly being like a news person. And he was not forthcoming about the extent of that strategizing he was doing with his brother's team more and more came out and it seemed like he had breached not just journalistic ethics but also trust within the journalism community even within the building at cnn so then he was sent packing chris cuomo out at cnn that was what a couple months ago so he's mad about it he's like i was just helping my brother and the way that he did it i think is just not excusable especially considering that CNN was allowing him to have his brother on the air in the good days, by which I mean the terrible days, those early horrible days of COVID, where Andrew Cuomo and his daily briefings, a lot of people in the country said, oh, this, this is what we need. This is great leadership. So the two brothers would sort of josh and kid each other on the air. Oh, you're mom's favorite. No, mom always loved you, or all that teasing. And then as soon as the news got worse for Cuomo, his political fortunes faded, then all of a sudden the ethics kicked in. Oh, we can't have the brothers talking to each other. We can't have one brother interviewing another in a journalistic setting. That doesn't make sense. So they had to backpedal on that. So Chris Cuomo's out here, out of a job, 
very angry. He feels humiliated. We know he's got a temper. We know the Cuomo family, very vindictive. Think about how they were treating our colleague Janice Dean, for example. And he wants a big payout. And there are all these discussions about lawsuits and lawyers and all this stuff. And I, again, this is what I'm gathering. And there are multiple CNN people who have now said on the air that Chris Cuomo is willing to blow up CNN sort of on a revenge tour unless he got his money. And it sounds like one of the things that he had in his pocket was the knowledge about this relationship between the boss and the second boss at CNN, making all these decisions for all these people, right? It's a boss and a subordinate, and then they're together having an affair, sleeping with one another, making all these decisions about all these other people's careers and lives. I mean, it's not just like, oh, look at these star-crossed lovers. Isn't this a shame? There are different permutations to this. It's not that simple. I think there's some really silly, naive commentary out there from some people. But what Chris Cuomo is saying is, okay, I'm sorry. If you're going to say I'm unethical and I've got a problem, you're going to fire me? Really? Guess what I know about? And apparently so does everyone else in New York City, in the media world. I never knew about it. I, I don't like this kind of gossip. I'm very glad I never knew about this until now. But what if we blew the whistle on that? What if we shared a few other things that we know about the leadership of CNN and what they were doing behind the scenes, vis-a-vis, in particular, the Cuomos? It just seemed like there was something or some things that Chris Cuomo was uh, prepared to drop, right, drop this hammer. And then comes this story today. Earlier this afternoon, just two hours ago, it dropped from the New York Post. Let me just read this, and it's, I mean, this would explain some things. CNN boss Jeff Zucker and his paramour, Allison Gollist, had an inappropriately close friendship with former Governor Andrew Cuomo, personally calling him to do news segments with his brother, Chris Cuomo, and even, listen to this, and even coaching him on what to say during his infamous COVID briefings, the New York Post has learned. Now, this might be coming from the investigation that's happening internally. It has now sprung some leaks, and there's a leak war over at CNN. Isn't that sort of interesting? Gallist and Zucker, the latter of whom dramatically quit on Wednesday after their affair was exposed, also gave Andrew Cuomo endless positive coverage because of their relationship. Sources said, while those 11.30 a.m. daily briefings by Andrew were across every network, they boosted ratings in a poorly performing slot for CNN, said one source. According to a source uh, close to Cuomo, Zucker and Gallist even would advise Andrew, the governor, what to say, how to respond, and particularly how to hit back at Trump during these press briefings on COVID, to make it more compelling TV. Aha. So Chris Cuomo gets fired for being unethical and misleading people about it. So you could make the case that is a justified firing. But he's saying, okay, if I was helping my brother and I was inappropriately intertwined with my brother's political operation, in sort of this, uh, you know, PR damage control effort. Isn't it interesting that the top bosses that fired me 
apparently, according to the New York Post and their sources, and I think this is probably coming to light in the CNN investigation, the bosses at CNN were also intimately involved, not just with each other in that sense, but very closely involved with Governor Cuomo's operation, coaching him in the middle of the pandemic, coaching the governor of New York what to say in his press briefings that they were then airing live on CNN with glowing coverage and everyone just sort of giving a tongue bath on the air to Andrew Cuomo, gushing. You had the leaders of CNN coaching the governor of New York what to say, how to make it better TV, because it was helping their ratings in that day part, and how they could spar with Trump, how he could call out Trump and distinguish himself from Trump, and that would add to the controversy and add to their ratings. Talk about unethical. Then you fire the guy's brother for doing behind-the-scenes, sort of like political PR for him. That's what they were doing, allegedly. That is an extraordinary scoop at the New York Post about CNN. As I said, this was not about just an undisclosed consensual relationship that HR didn't know about, but apparently everyone else did. This was about a lot more, and I still don't think we're done with the revelations. The Guy Benson Show, just getting started on this Thursday. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Just a few more notes here on the CNN stuff. Brian Stelter, who's their media reporter, kind of like their Howie Kurtz, but really just kind of a CNN PR person, he tweeted one of the bosses at CNN Today on the editorial call, said, we're all in shock. You can't can't replace Jeff. It's not possible. There's no one else like him. The best thing we can do is honor his legacy and continue his mission. And what would those be, his legacy and that mission? How is that going at CNN? So they were at the top levels of CNN, Zucker himself, coaching Andrew Cuomo about what to say during his press conferences on COVID. They were also personally appealing, and the number two, the woman he was having an affair with, used to work for Andrew Cuomo. She was appealing and using that loyalty to get him on CNN, including on Chris Cuomo's show, on a regular basis when they weren't coaching him up, I guess. That's the revelation here today. And then the coverage of Cuomo on that network was glowing in those days. Not a coincidence, was it? Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. (laughs) His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Dealing with hardship actually makes you stronger. That's what Governor Cuomo said earlier today. That's what I'm going to go teach my kids right now at home. It's the Guy Benson Show. 
Welcome back. That was Brian Stelter, a little uh, flashback there. The type of obsequious coverage that Governor Cuomo got. I'm, I'm going to go race home and teach my children what Governor Cuomo has taught us all. Well, we know now, based on the New York Post reporting in this, I guess, investigation at CNN, that the top brass at CNN, having the affair with one another, they were also constantly in frequent contact with the governor then of New York, Andrew Cuomo, coaching him on what to say at the press conferences, which they then covered glowingly on their network. And they would also appeal to him through their friendships and their relationships, and she had worked for the guy to come on their network a lot. Right? There were criticisms about the two brothers being on the air together, and was that ethically okay, and CNN allowed it. They didn't allow it. They orchestrated it. The president of the network orchestrated it while also orchestrating some of the things being said at the press conferences on public health and COVID in the early days from Governor Cuomo. It's just amazing. Let's get to Katie Pavlich, my friend and colleague twice over, townhall.com and also Fox News, where she's a contributor. Katie, uh, your thoughts hey Your thoughts on the CNN thing? Uh, my thoughts are that they're trying to pass this off as a story about uh, a relationship that was not disclosed, a sexual relationship, and I don't buy that for two seconds. I think that the Cuomo brothers are, are getting their revenge, Chris Cuomo in particular, and I think there's a lot more that went on behind the scenes about uh, the pandemic and maybe other uh, scandalous situations as well. Let's not forget that Chris Cuomo uh, left his house when he was COVID positive uh, while the rest of CNN was preaching to everybody else about staying home uh, and stopping the spread and not putting other people at risk. And it's very obvious that uh, Zucker, along with other executives, were perfectly happy with uh, the relationship between the Cuomo brothers, uh, despite meeting some scrutiny of Governor Andrew Cuomo. I know, they were choreographing it. They were... Into, right, so they were shoving seniors into uh, nursing homes and... Uh, lying about numbers, and while Andrew Cuomo was locking down $5 million book deals uh, while the pandemic was still ongoing. So I think that this has nothing to do with the relationship. I think that was a way out, and that there's a lot more behind the scenes going on that we may not find out about due to legal disclosures or uh, that kind of thing. But uh, I think this has everything to do with Chris Cuomo coming back and saying, Oh, no, I know where all the bodies are buried, and I'm happy to show the world where they are if you don't resign. Yeah, and uh, now we're seeing them. And it actually reminds me of, and I just thought of this, Jim McGreevy, former governor of New Jersey, uh, resigned amid scandal, and the way he decided to resign was coming out as gay. He's like, it's okay, I've struggled with this, I am a gay American, is what he said. And it was like, okay, kind of a big-ish deal back then. But it wasn't really the resignation-worthy thing, being gay. It was the fact that he put his lover, who was a totally unqualified poet, in charge of the state's national security, (laughs) homeland security operation. That was kind of the issue. But he's like, oh, no, look over here. And, of course, most of the media did exactly that when the actual scandal was much more than just, you know, some sort of sexual thing. All right, Katie, I want to get your take on this. We saw all these uh, Democratic politicians at the NFC Championship game violating the indoor mask mandate, posing for photos, and the whole thing. Uh, Not surprised. They've all done it before. Several of them have been caught red-handed before, or red-faced perhaps before. 
And I wonder which is your favorite response from a public official. Setting aside Gavin Newsom, you had London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, when she was called out on this last year, she famously said, cut 16. I got up and started dancing because I was feeling the spirit. All right, she was feeling the spirit up in San Francisco, which is why she ignored her own mask mandate there. Now Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles, who was photographed several times without a mask on at the football game, he has his explanation in cut 12. I wore my mask the entire game, and when people ask for a photograph, I hold my breath and I put it here and people could see that. There's a 0% chance of infection from that. So he's, he's saying he wore his mask the whole time. Not true. Except when he was taking photographs and he would, he would hold his breath, Katie. Do we like feeling the spirit or holding your breath better as an excuse? I think holding, holding your breath because it's just <laughs> such a lie. I mean, maybe feeling the spirit, like I can see being, you know, in a situation maybe where you start getting all hyped up and go dancing. But this idea that he holds his breath every time he takes a photo uh, it's easy to laugh at, but this actually makes me extremely angry considering yes. I know people in California whose businesses were shut down for not properly enforcing the mask mandate when little children in California are being forced to mask in their schools, uh, destroying uh, parts of their future and their development. And yet you have these lunatics who are willing to go and live their lives, which, by the way, they've been doing since the beginning of the pandemic, really. They've never really been as afraid of the virus as they've told everybody else to be afraid of. Uh, you know, yeah, he was at the French to, Laundry. The governor was at the French Laundry right, pre-vaccine right. doing whatever he but wanted. It was worse than just being at the French Laundry guy. He was at the French Laundry inside, indoors, no mask, crowded room yep. with doctors and high-profile health lobbyists. Yep. It wasn't no, we, just anybody. It wasn't just a We remember. And, and then so, he was at the football game, right. and he was caught lying totally about him wearing the mask at the football game, and there's tons of evidence for that. So, okay, so your vote is for holding your breath. I think that is probably yeah, more insulting than feeling the spirit, although feeling <laughs> the spirit's a pretty good one. On the issue of businesses being shut down, we just saw a battle here in Washington, D.C., a restaurant. Very high-profile way. Shut down by the city. Mayor Bowser and company, they're not going to stand for this. And so one of these businesses, small businesses that did not want to participate in the whole show-me-your-papers thing in D.C., and I'll, of course, point out Mayor Bowser herself also famously violates her own mandates. We've seen that over and over again. But they've shut down this restaurant. They've barred the door. I know that you are covering that. And then there's this very sad development just a few blocks away from that restaurant last night there was yet another carjacking there's like one a day at least in dc for the last year and a half this one there was some video the audio is awful i guess there was a mother and a child in the car when the car was stolen at gunpoint in cut 19 here's what it sounded like It's just it's horrible to listen to. Uh, It's chilling. Mm -hmm. We believe everyone involved, thank God, is now okay. But we have that situation playing out every day in Washington, D.C., and the powers that be in Washington, D.C. are making a big show of shutting a restaurant down. 
No, it's it's despicable. I drove down there with our colleague Spencer Brown the other night just to show some support and order a burger at this restaurant where they're just not participating in this show your papers charade. And I was joking about how we had to be careful because you're driving into a part of town where your chances of being shot or carjacked are a million times more likely than getting COVID and dying in that restaurant. And it's just infuriating to think they're going after local businesses who employ people who are there just trying to earn an honest living, whether it was the guy working in the, the register, the people in the kitchen, those people are, are doing the right thing. They're not out on the street carjacking innocent people and stealing things from them uh, at gunpoint or at knife point. And yet the mayor is more focused on shutting down those kinds of people. It's not just the business. It's all the people who work in the business. And it's a local restaurant that's been there for years in D.C. And as you mentioned, these types of crimes are happening every single day. And I really haven't heard anything about a comprehensive strategy from the mayor to make it stop. Yeah, uh, no, and, 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 the, and the rules that she's enforcing so – ostentatiously and sort of in this vindictive way and it's all capricious the rules are made up she violates her own rules and yet she's going to take down this business and their livelihoods because of it meanwhile literally blocks away from that restaurant is that horrible scene we just uh, played the audio from finally katie i have a piece up today at townhall.com up this morning and i was building on an idea by phil kirpin i am lobbying the Republicans, the congressional leadership in Congress on the Republican side to, in response to Nancy Pelosi, apparently planning to very severely restrict the number of people who can go to the mm-hmm. State of the Union for Biden on March 1st. Apparently, Pelosi's talking about having even fewer people in there than, than last year, which was already a tiny crowd. She <laughs> wants to make it even smaller due to COVID and all of the quote unquote safety or whatever. I think the Republicans should invite all of their members who aren't allowed into the chamber down to Richmond, to the House of Delegates, into that chamber, fill it up, and have Glenn Youngkin give the response to the State of the Union address in front of a crowd that is standing and cheering and signaling we are making decisions for ourselves. They are rational decisions. We are the party of normalcy. They are the party of whatever they're doing up there in D.C. Quickly, your thoughts on my idea. I think it's an excellent idea that would show strength and leadership. I remember being being so disappointed last time around that they still were doing this COVID theater when they could have shown the world that we were strong and moving on. And now they're doubling down on that and making it worse. So I think this is a fabulous idea that the governor and Republicans in Congress should definitely take you up on. Yeah, look at the contrast. And when the Democrats want to come back and say, oh, it's irresponsible, it's reckless, most Americans are over that. They don't believe that anymore. And then we can just point at Governor Newsom and all these other people. Like, seriously, that's going to be your argument? It's not safe enough. Katie Pavlich, our guest of townhall.com and Fox News here on the show. Katie, enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. We mentioned earlier in the week an update on some of the school masking wars, which are totally... And completely irrational. And we mentioned the city of Denver, Colorado, which uh, we love Denver here on the show. Denver was about to lift a lot of their mask mandates around the city for bars and restaurants and shops and boutiques and that sort of thing. All right, that's some progress as we inch back toward normalcy now that the Omicron 
spike has crashed back down. But as we noticed, which made me want to tear my hair out, an exception to the relaxation of these rules was kids. So child care centers and schools, places where they are least needed based on data with a population least vulnerable to having a bad outcome from COVID, something that we have known for well over a year and a half. So what they should have done is started with the kids in making it mask optional or reversing the mandates. But they're doing it the opposite way. So we were decrying that as anti-science, bogus nonsense, and that's, of course, what it is. Well, there was a response from the vice president of the Denver School Board, someone called Tay Anderson. He calls himself a dad, an educator, a president of the Colorado Black School Board Caucus, and vice president of Denver's school board. He also has his pronouns in his bio. And he tweeted this. It's simple. There's no real punctuation here so that's a separate issue but he says it's simple if you don't want your student to wear a mask in school then all caps keep them at home and a little emoji of him making a little gesture like deal with it it's simple if you don't want your student to wear a mask in school keep them at home now very bravely he turned off replies to this you're not allowed to reply to the tweet you could quote tweet it which is what i did and i offered my own version of his tweet which is it's simple if you want your student to wear a mask in school have them do it but stop forcing that anti-science, baseless abuse onto every other kid in the classroom. I mean, it is extraordinary the length to which people will go, some of these adults in the government education bureaucracy, the extent to which they will just openly share explicitly their contempt for parents. And their solution here is, If you're a parent who wants to follow the data and follow the science in the Denver public schools and you don't want your kid masked up for eight hours a day for no good, justifiable reason, you're the problem. You need to deny your child an education. Keep them at home. I guess the option would be failed virtual learning. This gets it exactly backwards. What should happen, the thing that makes sense Not that I'm expecting someone like this to make sense, but it would be go to mask optional, which is what many, many doctors and experts are finally admitting is the best course of action. I think it's been the best course of action for a very long time, dating back well into last year. It is clearly the case now. Masks in schools, cloth masks on kids, they've achieved nothing during Omicron. Let parents make decisions for their kids. If you want your kid in a mask because it makes you or them more comfortable or makes you feel safer or what have you, or you want the fitted N95 mask and you feel like that's the right thing to do because it protects you or your kid, go for it. There's no mask ban. 
that anyone's proposing. Just mask optional. But the tyrants, the people in charge, they don't want options. They don't want choices by parents. They want to dictate what must be done. No matter what the science actually says, they want the control. But it should be mask optional. If you want your kid in a mask, they can wear a mask. If you don't want your kid in the mask, for all sorts of reasons, they don't have to be masked in school. And if you happen to be someone like Tay Anderson, who is so fanatical about this stuff, and you're so paranoid about your kid, or let's say your kid does have some major condition where it's a reasonable concern, that would be the small fraction of kids that you would consider keeping at home for virtual learning, even though I think there'd be a very strong case that that kid would be experiencing a strong disservice and a deeply inferior education from home. We need classrooms open five days a week, masks optional. There is a ton of science supporting that. But there are a lot of people in charge, like Tay Anderson of the Denver School Board, who believes that your kid should not be allowed in school if you want them mask-free. Totally backwards. And I sound like a broken record. These are the types of people whose mentality needs to be defeated and broken. We're not there yet. But the fight continues and must continue. For the children, as Nancy Pelosi always says, but actually, in this case. New hour of the Guy Benson Show coming right up. Dr. Marty McCary, an actual medical expert, he will be here straight ahead. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it's a brand new hour of the guy benson show on the thursday edition we are delighted and thrilled and honored to have you here every day three to six p.m eastern that's the showtime. if you miss any of it you miss a lot so check out our free podcast. That is no charge. That is on demand, round the clock, as soon as the show is over. GuyBensonShow.com, your one-stop shop for everything. It's also available wherever you get your podcast. Another resource for you, if you're interested in what we're up to or catch some of my TV appearances, etc., you can follow us on social media, at GuyBensonShow. That's the handle. At Guy Benson Show, that's Twitter, that's Instagram, or you can follow me personally, or both. I'm at Guy P. Benson on both platforms. Joining me now is Dr. Marty McCary, Fox News contributor, surgeon, and professor of health policy at Johns Hopkins and their School of Public Health. He's author of the book, The Price We Pay, What Broke American Healthcare. He's on Twitter, at Marty McCary. Doctor, good to have you back here. Thanks for having me, Guy. Good to be with you. I first want to get your reaction, I know that you've been on the news channel and elsewhere talking about it, to a study that has emerged from your institution, Johns Hopkins, although over on the economic side. They tried to get a handle on how successful various COVID mitigation strategies were, and they concluded basically that lockdowns were a complete debacle, 
they did not really measurably help reduce COVID deaths, but they did increase a whole slew, a myriad of other risks to people, including psychological, economic, etc. I'm sure you saw it. I know you've been reacting to it. What is your big picture response to that study? Well, I think um, we have had one narrative on the lockdowns the entire pandemic. Now, this is the most significant and dramatic public health intervention, maybe in public health history. And that one narrative got significantly challenged by my good colleague, Dr. Stephen Hankey, who did this incredible, elaborate mathematical analysis showing that the overall reduction of mortality was almost negligible. It was two-tenths of 1%. Now, that translates in the United States to about 1,800 lives. Now, every life is worth saving, but the number of non-COVID excess deaths in the two years of the pandemic is probably around a quarter million because we know it was 124,000 in year one. And we have a little sneak peek into who is, who's in that group, people dying of a, out of a sense of hopelessness and poverty and deferred cancer care and kids depression. that never logged in. Depression. 25% of kids are depressed, according to Biden's own Surgeon General. Drug overdose, so, like all that stuff, domestic abuse, all of these, all of these ripple effect issues that also emerged during this pandemic. And they are health outcomes as well. You cannot only study one health outcome. We can't have our entire, you know, healthcare system focused on only heart disease or only cancer or only any one issue. You got to look at the whole person in public health. And, and so it, it was a flawed strategy. Now, it's not just a historical interesting point. We are still making the mistake. Look in the United States. Who is undergoing the most severe restrictions out of any group in America? It is children. It's it crazy. is the one most voiceless, defenseless group. And they are also the group that is least likely, we were just talking about this in the last hour, least likely to have severe outcomes from COVID or to die. Like they are almost inoculated against severe COVID simply by being children. And yet here we are with all of these restrictions still placed disproportionately on children. It's like upside down. And we've acted as if all children have the same risk. I can tell you that the rate of a healthy child dying is somewhere between zero and infinitesimally small. In Germany, it was zero children, five through 17, in 15 months of the pandemic when they had no vaccination. And when I talk to many large hospital um, uh, CEOs and doctors of practice at large children's hospitals, when we really talk deep into the issue, they say, yeah, we've had maybe one death or a couple deaths the entire two years, and they were in children with immune disorders or obesity or a condition. Now, it doesn't mean we treat them worse. It means those are the ones you really want to get vaccinated or immune, and you want, you want, you know, those are the ones we really have to take care of and put them first in line, not subject the same 72 million children in the United States to the same restrictions as if they are a homogeneous population, they're not. Yeah, and just to drill down on the numbers just for a moment, you mentioned 72 million American children. And over the course of two years, 2020 and 2021, CDC says there were about 900 deaths within the age group, infants to 18-year-olds, about 900 deaths total over those two years, so 450 a year-ish, related to COVID. And we know that some percentage of those were just incidental COVID positives, 
where they died of something else. That's a distinction that we've been talking about for a long time. We also know that that number, every single death of a child is absolutely gutting. That's also not the way that we form cogent, logical public policy because we've had multiple flu seasons over the last decade or so that have been deadlier for kids in that age range than COVID. We know that car accidents and swimming drownings are more frequent causes of death than COVID among these kids. And we don't have a bunch of sort of uproot their lives, massively disruptive restrictions on those things. And yet, if we have this conversation, even two years in, doctor, having this conversation out there in public, there'll be a whole chorus of people saying these people are callous. They don't care about kids dying. They might want kids to die. Risk assessment is viewed as a negative within a certain element of the population. I don't know what to do about that. Look, I want to I want in our own practice as a profession and as a country, us to do every single thing humanly possible to save every child life. But in order to do that, you have to take a global holistic approach at what are the reasons for which they are dying. And if you look at the data, children, say 15 to 24, 10 times more likely to die of drug overdoses, nine times more likely to die of homicide, nine times more likely to die of suicide, Uh, 8.8 times more likely to die of motor vehicle accidents. And you see a very similar trend in younger children as well. So kids are not don't just die from the virus. They die from hopelessness. And when you have massive depression and uh, other causes that are now uh, robbing them of their livelihoods, you've got to address the problem by looking at all aspects that are ruining lives in our child population. We cannot have a myopic vision. We, We cannot be lost where we're not seeing the forest from the trees. Dr. McCary, I want to play a soundbite. This is from CBS News. Dr. Ja was talking about masking. I know masks are a big political football. It's especially controversial for kids. I think understandably so because the data does not support masking kids. But here's what Dr. Ja was saying about the efficacy of masks. Cut 18. If you wear a high-quality mask, a CAN95 or an N95, which are now widely available, um, you can protect yourself under pretty much all circumstances. When I think about when I've been in the hospital taking care of sick patients with COVID, I'm wearing an N95, and they're not. The patients are not necessarily wearing a mask. And yet I know that I am protected by that, and, of course, I'm protected by my vaccine. So for me to compromise people, for people who are worried about getting sick, wearing a high-quality mask provides an enormous amount of protection against getting infected. Okay, that all sounds great. I endorse his point on the vaccine as well. It sounds to me, doctor, like he's making a very good case for people who feel like they are at heightened risk to protect themselves by wearing a high-quality medical-grade mask. That seems to me like a strong case, maybe inadvertently, that he was making for mask-optional decisions being made by people based on their risk profile. I think it was a strong argument, and I think if somebody has a concern or somebody has a special medical situation or or their doctor recommends they wear a mask or you wear a mask for a particular short period of time, let's say you were uh, recently around somebody where you think you may have gotten it and you're going to an area now that's an indoor public congress city, go ahead and wear a mask. The idea that we have to keep the entire society hostage because there's a few vulnerable members of society is going to backfire, and I think it has backfired. So we've got to take a balanced approach. I do want to ask you about something that was said 
just this week by the mayor of Los Angeles. He was caught, along with the mayor of San Francisco and the governor of California, they were not wearing masks at the football game last weekend, Rams 49ers. And, of course, there was an indoor mask mandate that they were violating. There were rules at the stadium that they were ignoring. And we've had different explanations and different lies and excuses from these politicians as they get caught. I think my favorite one is from the L.A. mayor who said that in the photographs where he was posing without a mask, he was holding his breath. Um, I I wonder, is that something that you recommend, doctor, uh, to to combat COVID, to hold your breath? Well, I don't recommend anybody hold their breath for too long because they might pass out. So it's not a good strategy. But look, we're seeing the absurdity. The American people are seeing the hypocrisy of many of these strategies. I can tell you at medical conferences, the doctors are not wearing masks. Some are, you know, it's a minority. When the doctors go out at the medical conferences, are they wearing masks when they go out to dinner? and hang? No. But yet many of these people are virtue signaling that kids still need to do so. And they're not even distinguishing People are seeing through the phoniness. They're seeing through the hypocrisy. They're seeing through the, the lie that natural immunity is ineffective and unreliable. My research team out of Hopkins had a big study out, come out today in JAMA, our top medical journal, showing that natural immunity is effective and durable up to 22 months. And if you had a positive COVID test in the past, that is 99.3% accurate that you've got circulating antibodies regardless of how long ago it was. So people need to... People People are now seeing through these sort of massive mistakes, the surface transmission, the cloth mask arguments, the ignoring natural immunity. And that's why now you're seeing this massive pivot where public health officials are saying, hey, we've got everybody under the gun here to do all these specific things. We need an exit strategy because people are, you know, the mob is coming after us. Well, there's a ton of natural immunity floating around now after Omicron, where there were just countless cases all across the country because it was so hyper contagious and thankfully less virulent. Just on that study that you guys just released, up to 22 months of the, the power and the sort of lasting staying power of those antibodies under natural immunity, what does that mean up to 22 months? Is that like the average 22 months? Because the number that we had been told that I had heard elsewhere was maybe six months of natural immunity. If you could just shed some light on that, that'd be great. Sure. So we we studied anyone previously infected with COVID. We invited them in. We tested their blood. And we've only had COVID in the United States for about 22 months to study. So that's just the nature of how long of a period where we could study it. Now, we think it's going strong at 22 months, so it's likely going to last much longer. But remember, we've been fed this lie. But there's a number of people, just to quickly jump in, I know several people off the top of my head, I can count them maybe on even two hands, who've had COVID twice. Yep. So 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 you've had natural immunity, then they get it again. So I'm just, I'm a little confused by that. Yeah. So natural immunity does not mean you can't get the infection by any means. It means you've got adaptive immunity, B and T cells and antibodies that are going to prevent severe illness. I see. And we actually looked at the effectiveness of natural immunity against Omicron in a follow-up study, and it was about 66% effective in preventing you from getting the infection. It's not very good, 66. It's higher than natural than sorry than vaccinated immunity. It's not reliable, but the goal has never been to prevent you from testing positive. The goal has always been to prevent severe illness, and we found that the antibody levels were strong consistently, regardless of how long ago it was that you tested positive for COVID. So it's not declining as vaccinated immunity and antibody levels are. 
uh, it's it's more durable than vaccinated That's immunity. Very interesting stuff, and it's sort of shocking that there's so little data on this in the United States. How little effort has been put in to quantify exactly what this study does i mean you're one of the few to my knowledge that's done that the government has all these resources all this money it seems like sort of natural immunity has been a dirty phrase to them but it's one of our ways out of this i think dr marty mccary thank you for your work thank you for your time today and insights here on the show fox news contributor johns hopkins surgeon and professor dr marty mccary on the guy benson show thanks doc thanks guy we'll step aside and come back after this Guy Benson will be right back. Last night, operating on my orders, the United States military forces successfully moved a major terrorist threat to the world, the global leader of ISIS, known as Haji Abdullah. Back on the Guy Benson Show, that was President Biden earlier today. He came out and gave a very brief statement about a U.S. operation that resulted in the death of the new leader of ISIS because we took out the previous leader of ISIS. And I guess it's next man up over at that terrorist organization, and hopefully we will blow that person to smithereens as well. He said that that leader of that organization exploded and detonated a bomb like a suicide-type situation, once U.S. special forces were in the vicinity. A pre-dawn raid that was conducted in northern Syria. All Americans have returned safely from this operation, thank God, and the terrorist leader is dead. This man was responsible, according to the U.S. government, for the recent attack on a prison in Syria that was holding ISIS fighters. And officials called him, quote, the driving force behind the genocide of the Yazidis in northern Iraq. Reading from NPR, a senior administration official who spoke to reporters on the condition of anonymity said that this ISIS terrorist, quote, detonated a blast, a significant blast, killing himself and several others, including his wife and children. This is the same terrorist tactic of his predecessor, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi taking his own life and his own family's life rather than face justice or stand and fight on his own. An absolute cowardly way out where we pinpoint the location of these guys. We plan a raid to go get them. And when they realize that they're done, when they realize that they're finished, when they realize that they're cornered, rather than face the music or face American justice, or face the fate of Osama bin Laden with a shot to the face, they instead push a button and kill not just themselves, but their own families, including children. That is not an ideology that can be reasoned with. If you're willing to kill your own kids, it's just the epitome of evil. And it has to be just defeated. That's the only solution. And thank God we degraded ISIS to a great extent during the previous administration. Massive credit to the Trump administration. And I'm glad that at least on this there's some continuity with the new person in charge now decapitated. 
Congratulations and Godspeed to the brave men and women who are responsible for this raid that led to this. And this is something where I'm not going to say a crossword about the president. As commander-in-chief, he authorized what happened, and it was a mission success for the United States of America and for the world. Adios, a-hole. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast on demand for free every day. With us is Congressman Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas, the 23rd Congressional District down there along the border. And, Congressman, it's great to have you back here on the show. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me, Guy. I appreciate the time. So I understand that you recently met, along with some other lawmakers, with the leader of U.S. Border Patrol. And we've seen some videos leak in recent days of the rank-and-file Border Patrol agents expressing some frustrations, I think understandably so, to leadership. Tell us about what you gleaned from that meeting with the Border Patrol chief, and what were some of the answers you were seeking from him? Yeah, you know, I spent 20 years in the military. I retired as a master chief, uh, an enlisted guy. So I am all in on the rank and file uh, to support the rank and file of Border Patrol agents. And one of the things I do, I, I reached out to, uh, to Chief Ortiz to just go, hey, man, come, come to the Hill. I'll put together a group, a bipartisan group, and let's just have a conversation. You know, let's just have – give us the, the no kidding, what's happening, and take some, some hard questions – and let's get to it. You know, uh, Republicans are in the minority right now, so we can't control what hearings come. We can't control what, what bills come to the floor. But you know what? As a member of Congress, you can put the work in and you can bring some people up here. I was excited. We got seven members in the room, uh, four Republicans, three Democrats. So it was a bipartisan group. And he just gave it to us uh, straight out. And one of the, the biggest takeaways or, or one of the big takeaways was he committed to adding 1,000 uh, processing agents um, in the near term. This is key because right now about 70% of Border Patrol agents are processing migrants, and they're not in the field. They're not stop- stopping bad guys. They're not stopping terrorism, drugs, all these other things. And that's where the low morale comes from. They don't want – these agents don't want to be in these processing centers. They want to be in the field. They want to be able to, to feel as if they're protecting America. Well, doing their jobs, right, which they're yeah. not allowed to do basically because their time is being diverted – into the processing of these countless, it feels like, illegal immigrants who are giving themselves up in a lot of cases because they want to go through the process and they want to be released, and then they hope that they can stay. And in many cases, it looks like they can't. That's the thing. We had Bill Malugin, our Fox colleague on this show last week, Congressman, and I'm sure you've seen his reporting recently of just busload after busload of single male illegal immigrants being shipped off to airports and flown all over the country, it really feels like we are a long way off from, you know, family units and unaccompanied minors. That's still part of the problem, but the problem seems to be exploding, and the problem seems to be mushrooming in other ways and ways that we were told was not really the crux of the issue. Oh, you're a thousand percent right. And, you know, these these flights – that are happening in the middle of the night, they've been going on for over a year. 
This isn't this isn't anything new. And they're going they're not only going to New York, they're going to all parts of the country. I mean, absolutely everywhere. Um, it's the wrong approach. Another thing that came out of that that bipartisan uh, briefing that we had with uh, the Border Patrol chief was, you know, he's concerned that uh, Title 42 is going to go away. Now, this is like the last Band-Aid that's as bad as things are now. Title 42 goes away and it's explain that. Explain what that means. Yeah. So Title 42 allows Border Patrol agents to expel a migrant that does not qualify for asylum immediately due to the pandemic situation. So if that goes away, then all of a sudden uh, you process them under something different, which what we're seeing, these migrants that get processed and they never show up for their court cases and they're allowed into our country. Title 42 allows you to expel someone immediately, which is exactly what should be happening. You know, I'm concerned this is good. Title 42 is going to go away as soon as next month. I mean, imagine that. I mean, we're seeing record numbers uh, so far this year, over 650,000 fiscal year, 650,000 migrants have come over. Title 42 goes away next month. And that that poor morale that you saw of the Border Patrol agents, it, there is I mean, it just goes away. I mean, it's just it'll be an absolute tsunami that hits rock bottom uh, and the incentives are all off the incentives are all completely wrong the biden administration can occasionally say something harsh to the camera don't come here it's dangerous we're a nation of laws it's very obvious that that is not the message being received around the world and i do mean around the world we talked about it this week as well some of the data from last month indicated that the largest group now of illegal immigrants being encountered at the border that does not count of course tens of thousands of gotaways every month these are people who are actually apprehended the largest group is no longer mexican nationals or nationals from that northern triangle area it's other the category of other 84 countries of origin between october and december for example at the end of 2021 all these different languages being spoken people coming from the middle east with these groups of people getting rounded up, there are, without fail, it seems like, some MS-13 gang members, people who have already been in the United States and convicted of a crime, deported, now they're back. I mean, there's a public safety component. It's not just getting our sovereignty in order and protecting the border just because that's what a serious country does. There's public safety concerns. There might be national security concerns as well. And it just feels like a lot of people don't, care about this issue in the national news media and on especially the other side of the aisle it's just carrying on day after day week after week with no end in sight and i guess when there's a lot of other scandals and crises happening this one is sort of on the back burner but not for the people down there not for those communities and certainly not for law enforcement at the border no that's exactly right i mean it it is the number one issue in my district it's the number one issue in my state for reason and that was a big reason why I put together this bipartisan uh, group to, to, to host uh, the, the Border Patrol chief is to go, look, if you don't want to go to the border, we'll bring the border to you. And all I want you to do is just listen to uh, straight from the horse's mouth what's going on. And, you know, when it was positive, you know, some of the members uh, from the other side were, were sending me positive messages going, hey, let's, let's see if we can fix something now. Uh, instead of just waiting, because there is no time. You know, I, w- I want to share something else with you, because you hit it right on the head. Uh, this fentanyl crisis that we're seeing. Yes. So, you know, a few weeks ago, one of the Border Patrol agents was sharing to me that these little drones, these small drones, are being out- uh, outfitted with small packets of fentanyl. Remember, you don't need a lot of fentanyl to, in order to make profit. 
and they take these drones and they from Mexico, they start in Mexico, they go into the United States, they drop these packets of fentanyl, a mule come and, comes and picks them up, and away they go, and they're dropping them in very urban areas. So guess what? I mean, that fentanyl, if, if that, that drop doesn't go right, I mean, anybody can, can stumble across these different packets. No, it's extremely it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. You also have the low morale among the rank and file, and as I alluded to earlier, some of that has boiled to the surface, and there have been some audio recordings released and some videos of some of these confrontations with leadership and the rank and file saying we're not being allowed to do our job. The job itself is quite dangerous because, yes, there are some people just trying to come to the United States for a better life with their family, and that doesn't mean that they have a right to be here. That's not a threat to the country. There are cartels and traffickers and others who really do pose a more significant threat. Bill Malugin, uh, I mentioned him earlier, he reported today that, I guess it was last night, there were U.S. officials at the border that had some incoming gunfire. They were shot at from the other side of the border. I would imagine those are cartels. I mean, these are extremely dangerous people as well. That's a component that I think a lot of people want to avert their eyes on and not really talk about. But my goodness, it's absolutely front and center if we're taking a holistic view of the border crisis. You're, you're spot on. And, and look, it is all terrible. The, the fact that Border Patrol agents, their morale is completely decimated. The fact that the, the sheer number of, of folks that are coming over illegally, the drugs, but nothing, nothing uh, keeps me up at night more than a terrorist action. I spent 20 years in the military. I spent five years in Iraq and Afghanistan. I know exactly what terrorism looks like. This is what terrorism looks like. An open border that is that has no rules and there is no rule of law is just an environment waiting for something terrible to happen. You know, you mentioned all these different people coming from all over the world. Uh, in El Paso a few weeks ago, there was a bunch of folks from Turkey. There's folks that have come over from Ukraine, from Russia, all over the world. Syria, Yemen. There were people Syria. on a terrorist watch list. I mean, that's the thing, Congressman. Yeah. Some people might listen to you and say, oh, that sounds like Republican fear-mongering. It's a terrorist attack waiting to happen. There were two terror watch list people who were on that list coming to the United States from Yemen via the southern border. Because I guess the memo is out, if you want to get into the United States of America, the way you can do it with a good chance of being undetected or having a chance of getting in and staying is not through the proper procedures, but to fly to Mexico or south of the border and then come up that way. That's not an invented out of whole cloth scenario. We're actually seeing at least some evidence of that threat. That's exactly right. It's a, it's a powder keg waiting to happen. The approach I've taken is this. Look, Republicans are going to win back the House. When we do win back the House, we have a plan in place. You know, I've hosted 41 members of Congress at the border. Uh, many Republicans have visited the border. We have a strong plan in place uh, on day one of what we're going to do when we take back the House. But that's a year from now. Right. Border Patrol agents well, and it's also and just to today. jump in, Congressman, and I'm first of all, I'm glad that you have a plan. There needs to be a plan. Obviously, the border crisis is going to be one of the issues on which Republicans need to campaign. I think that they should. Yeah. It's a glaring ongoing failure of the Biden administration. What I fear, though, is even if Republicans do win back the House, which I think is likely, they'll just have the House and maybe they'll have the Senate, too. But the guy in charge and the team in charge will still be at the White House which is extremely soft on illegal immigration. They're much more concerned about their activist base. They're much more concerned about equity and buzzwords like Latinx. They aren't really interested in enforcing the law, as they have made extremely clear 
with their DHS memos talking about the exceptions and carve-outs to all these people who can come illegally and commit other crimes and still not be eligible for deportation. That's still going to be the administration running the show. So, I mean, you guys can put pressure on them. You can hold hearings. You can have investigations. There are certain levers that you can use if you guys win. But it's still, I think, a consequence of the last presidential election. You're going to have an administration, at least for the next three years, in place that does not take border security seriously. I think that's the reality. Yeah, look, it is an uphill battle, no doubt, and you're, you're not wrong there. Uh, one of the things that I've done is look for people that genuinely want to solve this problem. And, and on the Democratic side in the House in particular, there's a lot of people that are retiring. I mean, they're trying to get out of here as fast as it can be. But you know what? This this bipartisan briefing that we had, I had members there. I had members that were engaged, that were asking good questions, that were trying to get involved. I think that's what it's going to take. It, it's going to take a few members that are willing to roll up their sleeves and go, you know what? we got to get this done, not for political points, but so we can save American lives. Because when a terrorist attack happens – they don't ask, are you a registered Democrat? Are you a registered Republican? Who did you vote for in the 2020 uh, presidential race? They're just trying to kill Americans. And I think, there's, I think there is some movement to do that. The fact that, that, that I had some members kind of uh, get involved in that. But more needs to happen, and it needs to happen more quickly. Uh, I, I'll also say this. Look, I, I'm glad that New Yorkers went down there and did this, this trip. I'm glad that the Border Patrol uh, chief went down there with him. And look, they, they took their licks. But they need to be doing more of that. They need to be hearing straight from the boots on ground, the rank and file. They can't shy away from it, whether that's good things or bad. Yeah, like, what, what worries me, Congressman, is that all happens, and then you run into a buzzsaw and a firewall at the White House with these woke staffers saying, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to cross our base. We're not going to cross our activists. And I think, case in point, this is my last question for you. I remember back, however many months ago it was, when there was this crazy smear on Border Patrol agents that they were out there on horseback whipping Haitian illegal immigrants. And there was a whole racial component that they were trying to read into it. It was all not true. It was just made up. They misunderstood what was happening. The video and the photographs vindicated these agents. There were no whips at all. It was reins for the horses that they were on as they were trained to do in that terrain, in that scenario. And you had Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, actually stand up briefly for the agents, saying, no, that's not what happened. But then the memo came down from on high, from the president, in fact, who said he was horrified by it, and these officers are going to pay for what they did. The media got all angry about it and whipped up into a frenzy, no pun intended. That was the last time they really covered the border at all. There was a chance to attack law enforcement. And Mayorkas then changed his tune on a dime, a 180, and he joined the official talking points of the media, the Democratic Party. But he did say we were going to have an investigation into what happened, and we would know and have those results in a matter of days, not weeks. Well, it's been months. We are still waiting, and there was a report last week that the administration is considering never releasing the results of that investigation, which I think will, of course, vindicate the agents and be an indictment of the president and the whole fake narrative that he amplified. I know some of your colleagues are saying that's unacceptable. We deserve those results because that was a probe vowed by this administration yeah look i'll tell you i've heard directly from people involved in that uh specific case because i've asked over and over and over again to go look man i you know i was there i was there two days after everything started happening and it's in my district i'm literally on the border every single week and i go if there's going to be some kind of 
uh, actions against agents, I want to know because I want to know all the facts. And, and what I was told is that there were no findings in that case and no agents were reprimanded. I mean, yeah, of course not. Story. Of course not. It was, it was a totally fabricated controversy where the administration was trying to deflect from their own failures and attack Border Patrol as if they were being racist out there just whipping illegal immigrants, which was not true. They said it. And then they promised a big investigation. Now they're suppressing the results of the investigation because it shows that they were lying all along. And they wonder, perhaps, why morale is so low. Not only are they not being allowed to do their jobs, they're also being baselessly smeared and slandered by the president himself and a bunch of people. And then they sort of just drive by that issue, never to be heard from again. I think it's important to keep that issue front and center because if there's going to be accountability, accountability has to go both ways. And suppressing accountability, if it makes it embarrassing politically for the White House, that has to be part of the picture. And I think that they're scared of that because they know what the investigation actually found. We've got to leave it there for now. Congressman Tody Gonzalez, Republican of Texas, the 23rd District, down at the border. Always appreciate your insights on these issues, Congressman. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate everything you're doing. Appreciate you. And we'll be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, in the last segment, we went kind of long with Congressman Gonzalez talking about the border crisis issue and really focusing on that. We promised you on this show that we're not going to lose sight of it, even though much of the media won't even talk about it. They don't even reference it. Earlier in the week, we were talking about the explosion of crime in Washington, D.C., and the way it's been sort of laughed off and dismissed by the White House in some ways and the White House press secretary. One of the examples that we gave was all the SWAT stickers that had been drawn all over Union Station here in Washington, D.C., the main beautiful train station, which has gotten pretty scary in that area. Someone painted SWAT stickers all over the building. And people were wondering who did this. Of course, there were people saying this is white supremacy on the march. Well, there's been an arrest. Here's the grim, sad, disgusting punchline. Quote, a man arrested for vandalizing Washington's Union Station with swastika symbols is a Mexican citizen with a 15-year criminal history who has been deported twice, but still now does not meet Biden administration standards for arrest or removal. Amazing. Go figure. Just think about that. Think about that sentence that I just read to you. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show is coming up. Senator John Cornyn, straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour on this Thursday. Thank you so much for joining us. We air 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern. The final hour, 5 to 6, is the Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp and delicious. And I recommend you try it. It's one of my favorite alcoholic beverages. TheLongDrink.com. That's the website. You can see where it's sold near you. They're expanding. You can also order online. 
thelongdrink.com. 21 plus, always drink responsibly. Our website here at the show, GuyBensonShow.com. Among many other features, we have a free podcast every day on demand that's no charge to you, GuyBensonShow.com, the entirety of the show every day. Joining me now is Senator John Cornyn, a Republican from the great state of Texas. And, Senator, it's great to have you back here. Thank you, Guy. Good to be with you. I would like to start on foreign policy and then get to domestic politics What is your view of the crisis in Ukraine? What do you think the Russians are going to do? What should the United States government be doing about it as we're all waiting and watching? Well, I'm very concerned um, about what uh, Mr. Putin is doing. Obviously, he senses an opportunity. And I think part of that is uh, because he senses some uh, vulnerability, some weakness on the part of the U.S. government. And uh, you'd have to point to the precipitous withdrawal out of Afghanistan without consultation with our allies and with uh, not much care for the consequences. And uh, and I think he so he's testing uh, the West and, and particularly the United States and, and also our NATO allies in Europe. But we don't know exactly what he intends to do. Um, he could engage in a bloody conflict that uh, coming across the border where in the um, eastern part of Ukraine where he's got uh, more than 100,000 troops arrayed, or he could decide to try to go directly at Kiev and, uh, and replace President Zelensky with a pro-Russian, um, a pro-Russian uh, uh, puppet. So, um, what, and what we should be doing is, is trying to help the Ukrainians defend themselves. That's why I've introduced a, a modern Lend-Lease bill. You may recall back in World War II, the United States uh, was the arsenal of democracy, in the words of uh, FDR, and helped our allies, principally Britain, uh, defend themselves against Nazi aggression. And uh, nobody's suggesting that we place troops in, in Ukraine, um, but uh, we should help them defend themselves. And, and so that's why I've advocated a modern Ukraine lend lease. Uh, right now it's tied to a larger bill that's being negotiated by Senator Menendez and Senator Risch of the Foreign Relations Committee, and they're primarily uh, talking about sanctions. I personally don't believe sanctions are going to change Putin's conduct. And uh, what I'm really concerned about is his timetable is not our timetable. In other words, time is not on our side, and uh, that he could act um, any day now. Meanwhile, Senator, I want to ask you about something that I have floated out there, and it's not an idea that I came up with completely on my own, but I fleshed it out on the show yesterday a little bit and earlier. I also wrote about it today at townhall.com. Just want to get your take on it. I would imagine you've seen the reports that Speaker Pelosi is looking at once again severely limiting the number of members who can attend the upcoming State of the Union address from President Biden next month. In fact, the report from Axios is that she's planning allowing even fewer people into the chamber than were allowed last year for the president's speech in April of 2021. That was extremely sparsely attended because of social distancing and all the masking. And even back then, there were allegations of COVID theater. And, of course, now we're two 
waves on after Delta, after Omicron. We've got even more people fully vaccinated in this country. And Omicron basically ripped through everyone over the last month or so. But this is the direction that Pelosi is reportedly headed. Another covid level state of the union with all sorts of restrictions and very few people in the hall my idea was to really draw a contrast with the democrats and there's an increasing appetite among the american people the polling shows this for getting back to normal you know go get vaxxed go live your life i wonder if the republicans in their response there's always that unenviable response to the state of the union it's a tough gig tim scott did a great job last year i would say but my idea was take a page out of the playbook from 2020 years ago with the newly elected republican governor just across the river in virginia which was a big sort of blowback against a new democratic president with falling approval ratings and bob mcdonald at the time gave the response in front of a packed house down in Richmond, in the House of Delegates at the Capitol in Virginia. And I just wonder, would you guys consider maybe handing that baton to Governor Glenn Youngkin, who I think is an effective communicator, he's doing a great job in the early going in Virginia, and maybe invite all the Republican members of Congress who won't be able to get into the chamber in the House of Representatives because of Pelosi's rules, have them drive down to Richmond, and have a sort of a, a counter-programming, rollicking good time where the Republicans can say, we're, we're getting back to normal. That's the Republican Party. The Democrats are all in fitted Chinese N95 masks, you know, 10 feet apart up in Washington, D.C. I just wonder what you think of that. I'm not asking you to commit to it. I just want to get your reaction. Well, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, first of all, I thought uh, Governor Youngkin ran a magnificent campaign. Uh, that really resonated with the people that we need in particular to win elections, which are suburban um, voters. And uh, and by emphasizing things that uh, typically the Democrats tend to lead on, which is on education. But uh, right. here, uh, by, 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 uh, by keeping parents or trying to keep parents out of the equation when it comes to their children's education and the curriculum that they're taught in school, um, he, he did a magnificent job. So I love the contrast, and um, I'll, I'll pass that suggestion along. As for Nancy <laughs> Please Pelosi, do. As for Nancy Pelosi, uh, she loves it when, uh, when, the, when the members of the House vote by proxy, uh, which empowers her even more to do what she wants to do strictly along party lines and not engage in serious bipartisan negotiations. And as you know, uh, they're, 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 when the people are afraid, they tend to submit to more control. And uh, she continues to, to play that tune, that show that movie over and over again. And I agree with you. After people are triple vaxxed and masked, um, I mean, it's time for people to start getting on with our lives. Uh, we're all... Uh, able to make risk assessments. We do it every day for a multitude of potential risks, and this is one we ought to be managing as well. Yeah, if the governor of California can go to a football game in a luxury suite, sitting around without a mask on while he's forcing school kids in his state to wear a mask eight hours a day, it just doesn't make any sense. And these lawmakers are on airplanes all the time. They're traveling. They're eating out in restaurants, but they can't sit and listen to the president speak. And look, I mean, the whole thing, these days, especially about the State of the Union, I know 
slowly but surely the ratings have come down and down. It was an awful rating last year for Biden in his joint session speech. But it's really the pageantry and the theater of it. It's an opportunity to really use the bully pulpit in a major way. If they want to cripple themselves by having an empty room and a guy who doesn't really inspire very much when he's giving his you know, oratory, uh, that's their decision. If they want to surrender that advantage, they can make that call. They can pretend that it's about safety. And the Republicans can say, all right, we're going to do our own risk assessment, and we're going to have a mask-optional, heavily vaccinated event just across the river, down in Richmond, Virginia. And everyone who's barred from the House chamber can come down and listen to the most recently elected high-profile Republican lay out what Republicans believe. I think the juxtaposition would be uh, pretty profound. So just putting that out there, I know you said you said you're going to send it up the flagpole. I can't ask for anything more than that. There's another issue on domestic politics that I want to get your take on. You are a member, of course, of the Judiciary Committee in the U.S. Senate. There is this Supreme Court vacancy that is upcoming with the impending retirement of Justice Breyer. Senator Schumer was on the floor earlier, and he made a very curious statement in defending President Biden's approach to filling this vacancy, which he's announced ahead of time, will be first and foremost based on sex and skin color. Then he'll get to qualifications. Many people have questioned that. The majority of the American people aren't in favor of it based on an ABC News poll that came out on Sunday. But Schumer, I guess, is a fan of this and is out there making the case on behalf of the president and that way of going about things. And here's what he said earlier. Let's listen together. Cut 20. The president's pledge to name a black woman to the Supreme Court is historic. There have been 115 justices who have sat on the court since 1789. Only five of them have ever been women, none until 1981. Only two have been African-American, but never, never has there been an African-American woman who still make up barely 6% of the federal judiciary. And amazing, until 1981, this powerful body, the Supreme Court, was all white men. Imagine. America wasn't all white men in 1981 or ever. All right, Senator Cornyn, a couple things. Schumer mentions there that right now in the federal judiciary, there is only 6% black women. I would just note, you don't have to comment on it, I would just note that that is approximately the percentage of the African-American female population in the country, 6 or 7%. So I'm not 100% sure what his point is on that. But what he really underscored was the fact, in his mind, that the U.S. Supreme Court was only white men exclusively until 1981. And I believe, I'm not a history scholar, sir, but I believe Thurgood Marshall might like a word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The uh, I, w- I would say, Guy, that there, I have a number of problems with the president's approach on this uh, vacancy. One is Democrats were the one, and specifically Joe Biden as a senator, uh, basically warned George W. Bush that if he nominated the first black woman to the Supreme Court, Janice Rogers Brown, that he would filibuster and kill her nomination. So there is that, The uh, okay. I would say, the hypocrisy. Secondly, um, you know, if the president had said, I'm going to pick the best person, and it happened to be an African-American woman, I think it would be a far different scenario. But if you're, a, let's say, an Asian uh, judge or candidate for the Supreme Court, how fair is it to be 
excluded from consideration based on your race and ethnicity. Uh, and then finally, I would say one of my concerns is that uh, there, there is a pool of qualified candidates, no doubt. But if you are chosen now that uh, President uh, Biden is, has stated this uh, identity politics approach, then people are forever going to believe you got this job because you're an African-American woman, not because you're the best qualified. I and that's not, her, that's not her fault. That's his fault. Exactly. And I think it's a disservice to the eventual nominee. Last question, and it also deals with Senator Schumer. It was just reported yesterday, I saw, that that famous memo that Joe Manchin from West Virginia had put together saying, these are the things that I'd agree to and build back better, and Schumer signed it and acknowledged it. That memo apparently never went to Speaker Pelosi and was never shared with the White House during this process. I'm not an expert on the internal politics of the Senate and how this stuff necessarily works, but that doesn't seem like a great leadership strategy to me, Senator Cornyn. Yeah, I've never heard of any any uh, leader, floor leader in the Senate or, or speaker or any person in a position of responsibility and leadership in the in the Congress getting a contract basically signed between a member and him, him and then basically sitting on it. Um, it a secret. I, I, it was bizarre. And uh, obviously, uh, Senator Schumer hoped he would be able to get Joe Manchin to change his mind, but he didn't uh, with uh, predictable consequences. Yeah, maybe Senator Schumer needs to reconsider some of his leadership choices and also needs to figure out uh, – perhaps a, a fact checker for his speechwriting staff blowing it badly on Justice Marshall in that speech this morning, which is a pretty bad error given the point he was trying to make. Up on a break, Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, always appreciate your time. Thanks, Guy. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We continue. It's the Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here. It's the happy hour. And yesterday in our home stretch final segment, we talked a bit about Groundhog Day. And Phil, the groundhog, and that whole nonsense in my mind. My position was quite clear. I'm not really a fan or believer in the whole tradition. Other people apparently like it. Producer Christine is big on it. And we had some back-and-forth fun, and I, of course, was playing the role of the grumpy skeptic, which I can do from time to time rather convincingly. So I figured we might hear from some listeners who are Groundhog fans, and not just those who might live in Minnesota, although those are technically gophers. And indeed, got a few notes. I want to highlight one of them. This is from a listener named Stella. And here's what she posted on social media. Guy, I work afternoons and listen to your show. Your discussion on Groundhog Day with Christine made me want to reach inside my phone and throttle you. LOL. From being a young child in western Pennsylvania, Groundhog Day was always magical and mysterious to follow. How a groundhog could predict the end of winter, etc. Until I grew up and realized how special it was for Puxatawney, Pennsylvania. Puxy is a small rural community. It's one day of the year that hundreds, if not thousands, show up. And it's February 2nd. The significance of that date, and I had asked this question, 
on the show yesterday. I did not bother to look it up. Christine didn't know either, but here it is. Stella is educating me. The significance of that date is actually very simple. Whether Phil gets it right or wrong, spring is exactly six weeks away. Who would have thought that a small rural community in western Pennsylvania could put itself on the map and attract visitors and others to celebrate this one day in the year? Go Christine, she writes, for recognizing what the men, meaning yours truly, Dan and Wyatt, don't. In Western PA, we will always love Phil and his handlers, the inner circle. And that is from Stella. And I got this sent to me via text from Christine, just relaying this. And I can't help but wonder, Christine, did you particularly enjoy this comment because you got a go, Christine? It is not often. Uh, almost, I dare I say never. I see any fan mail for Cookie. So I took it and I ran with it, of course. You're going to count this as fan mail from Stella? That's all I got. Okay, we'll allow it. Thanks for the information, Stella. You haven't changed my mind on the silliness of these traditions, but I'm glad that it brings joy to you and Western Pennsylvania and your community, and I'm especially glad that you're out there listening to the show. Please, 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 if we ever meet, don't throttle me. I'm actually pretty nice. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. Hey, Stella! Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Earlier on today's show, here on The Guy Benson Show, we welcome back our friend and colleague twice over from townhall.com and Fox News, Katie Pavlich. A lot to get to with her. Always a fun conversation. Here's my chat with Katie Pavlich. Uh, your thoughts. Hey, your thoughts on the CNN thing. Uh, my thoughts are that they're trying to pass this off as a story about uh, a relationship that was not disclosed, a sexual relationship, and I don't buy that for two seconds. I think that the Cuomo brothers are, are getting their revenge, Chris Cuomo in particular, and I think there's a lot more that went on behind the scenes about uh, the pandemic and maybe other uh, scandalous situations as well. Let's not forget that Chris Cuomo uh, left his house when he was COVID positive uh, while the rest of CNN was preaching to everybody else about staying home uh, and stopping the spread and not putting other people at risk. And it's very obvious that uh, Zucker, along with other executives, were perfectly happy with uh, the relationship between the Cuomo brothers, uh, despite meeting some scrutiny of Governor Andrew Cuomo. I know, they were choreographing it. They were... Into, right, they were shoving seniors into uh, nursing homes and uh, – lying about numbers and while Andrew Cuomo was locking down $5 million book deals uh, while the pandemic was still ongoing. So I think that this has nothing to do with the relationship. I think that was a way out yep. and that there's a lot more behind the scenes going on that we may not find out about due to legal disclosures or uh, that kind of thing. But uh, I think this has everything to do with Chris Cuomo coming back and saying, oh, no, I know where all the bodies are buried and I'm happy to show the world where they are if you don't resign and, yeah, and uh, now we're seeing them and it actually reminds me of and i just thought of this jim mcgreevy former governor of new jersey uh, resigned amid scandal and the way he decided to resign was coming out as gay 
He's like, it's okay. I, I've struggled right. with this. I am a gay American is what he said. And it was like, okay, kind of a big-ish deal back then, but it wasn't really the resignation-worthy thing, being gay. It was the fact that he put his lover, who was a totally unqualified poet, in charge of the state's national security, (laughs) homeland security operation. That was kind of the issue. But he's like, oh, no, look over here. And, of course, most of the media did exactly that when the actual scandal was much more than just, you know, some sort of sexual thing. All right, Katie, I want to get your take on this. We saw all these uh, Democratic politicians at the NFC Championship game violating the indoor mask mandate, posing for photos, and the whole thing. Uh, Not surprised. They've all done it before. Several of them have been caught red-handed before, or red-faced perhaps before. And I wonder which is your favorite response from a public official. Setting aside Gavin Newsom, you had... London Breed, the mayor of San Francisco, when she was called out on this last year, she famously said, cut 16. I got up and started dancing because I was feeling the spirit. All right. She was feeling the spirit up in San Francisco, which is why she ignored her own mask mandate there. Now, Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles, who was photographed several times without a mask on at the football game, he has his explanation in cut 12. I wore my mask the entire game. And when people ask for a photograph, I hold my breath and I put it here and people could see that. There's a 0% chance of infection from that. So he's he's saying he wore his mask the whole time. Not true. Except when he was taking photographs and he would would hold his breath, Katie. Do we like feeling the spirit or holding your breath better as an excuse? I think holding holding your breath because it's just (laughs) such a lie. I mean, maybe feeling the spirit, like I can see being, you know, in a situation maybe where you start getting all hyped up and, go dancing but this idea that he holds his breath every time he takes a photo uh it's easy to laugh at but this actually makes me extremely angry considering i know people in california whose businesses were shut down for not properly enforcing the mask mandate when little children in california are being forced to mask in their schools uh destroying uh, parts of their future and their development and yet you have these lunatics who are willing to go and live their lives, which, by the way, they've been doing since the beginning of the pandemic, really. They've never really been as afraid of the virus as they told everybody else to be afraid of. Uh, you know, yeah, he was at the French to, Laundry. The governor was at the French Laundry pre-vaccine right. doing whatever he wanted. But it was worse than just being at the French Laundry guy. He was at the French Laundry inside, indoors, no mask, crowded room yep. with doctors and high-profile health lobbyists. Yep. It wasn't no, we, just anybody. It wasn't just a We family. remember. And, and then so, he was at the football game, right. and he was caught lying totally about him wearing the mask at the football game, and there's tons of evidence for that. So, okay, so your vote is for holding your breath. I think that is probably yeah, more insulting than feeling the spirit, although feeling <laughs> the spirit's a pretty good one. On the issue of businesses being shut down, we just saw a battle here in Washington, D.C., a restaurant. Very high-profile way. Shut down by the city. Mayor Bowser and company, they're not going to stand for this. And so one of these businesses, small businesses that did not want to participate in the whole show-me-your-papers thing in D.C., and I'll, of course, point out Mayor Bowser herself also famously violates her own mandates. We've seen that over and over again. But they've shut down this restaurant. They've barred the door. I know that you are covering that. And then there's this very sad development just a few blocks away from that restaurant last night there was yet another carjacking there's like one a day at least 
in D.C. for the last year and a half. This one, there was some video. The audio is awful. I guess there was a mother and a child in the car when the car was stolen at gunpoint. In Cut 19, here's what it sounded like. It's just, it's horrible to listen to. Uh, It's chilling. Mm -hmm. We believe everyone involved, thank God, is now okay. But we have that situation playing out every day in Washington, D.C., and the powers that be in Washington, D.C. are making a big show of shutting a restaurant down. No, it's it's despicable. I drove down there with our colleague Spencer Brown the other night just to show some support and order a burger at this restaurant where they're just not participating in this show your papers charade. And I was joking about how we had to be careful because you're driving into a part of town where your chances of being shot or carjacked are a million times more likely than getting COVID and dying in that restaurant. And it's just infuriating to think of going after local businesses who employ people who are there just trying to earn an honest living, whether it was the guy working in the, the register, the people in the kitchen. Those people are, are doing the right thing. They're not out on the street carjacking innocent people and stealing things from them uh, at gunpoint or at knife point. And yet the mayor is more focused on shutting down those kinds of people. It's not just the business. It's all the people who work in the business. And it's a local restaurant that's been there for years in D.C. And as you mentioned, these types of crimes are happening every single day. And I really haven't heard anything about a comprehensive strategy from the mayor to make it stop. Yeah, uh, no, and, 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 the, and the rules that she's enforcing so – ostentatiously and sort of in this vindictive way and it's all capricious the rules are made up she violates her own rules and yet she's going to take down this business and their livelihoods because of it meanwhile literally blocks away from that restaurant is that horrible scene we just uh, played the audio from finally katie i have a piece up today at townhall.com up this morning and i was building on an idea by phil kirpin i am lobbying the Republicans, the congressional leadership in Congress on the Republican side to in response to Nancy Pelosi, apparently planning to very severely restrict the number of people who can go to the mm-hmm. State of the Union for Biden on March 1st. That full interview with Katie Pavlich and the entire show today, start to finish, available on demand on the podcast. That's daily. No charge to you as soon as this show ends. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, producer Christine has an update, plus an interesting opportunity in Central Park in New York for a daring criminal, perhaps. Indeed, perhaps even Christine is thinking about this. We'll explain when we come back. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday, Friday Eve. I'll be doing the show tomorrow from Lawrence, Kansas. Looking forward to that. And we will also be attending over the weekend KU basketball against Baylor. Big game in the Big 12. So excited for that. We'll talk more about that tomorrow on the show. For now, as we return here, final segment, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast always free. First, we want to start with producer Christine and an update 
it sounds like the house sale is moving forward. It's not completely done yet, but there is a target closing date at this point. The terms are all agreed upon. They're just waiting on one or two last contingencies, Christine. And you are very excited, mostly because you think this vindicates your decision to waste a lot of money on a psychic. Would you like to apologize to Tiana on air right now? I'll give you the floor. I don't know who that is. Is that your psychic? Yes. Does she listen? Or does she just know know what I'm going to say? So she doesn't bother. You never know. But, I mean, you just, I mean, you could, she could speak or take the apology on behalf of psychics around the world. Because you were poo-pooing all over it. Yeah. And today we found out that if there's one more thing we need to do, if that is fine and works out, we are closing literally in the month of April, which is what she had told me when I didn't even know if it was going to happen at all. So she was right. Yeah, so it hasn't happened yet, number one. Number two, it's generally like a month or two for a closing. So that was a very easy guess, right? This is how they dupe gullible people. And they're like, oh, wow, she was totally right. She didn't see that you were going to the hospital a few days after you were there for your card reading, but she Googled how quickly home closings go and apparently maybe nailed it. And you you view this as vindication. Well, okay, I I have a thought about the hospital part of that. Maybe she didn't want to scare me. Could you imagine if a psychic had told me you're going to wind up in the hospital? Can you imagine on what level of crazy I would have jumped to? So you think that she was, I, <laughs> this was an act of kindness. She saw in your cards that you were about to need to go to the hospital. She just chose, as a matter of propriety, to spare you the anguish and let that be a surprise? That's your take on this? Well, I don't know, but that's surprised but obviously she probably saw that it wasn't going to be you know it wasn't fatal it wasn't catastrophic so she will she have told you that why would she why would she tell you that you're going to die if she could see that coming if she didn't i don't think they do i don't think psychics really do do that i don't think they ever tell you you're going to die that would be terrible it's also because they don't know you don't you don't know that they don't know that's all I'm going to say. Well, what I do know is that I could be a psychic and I could tell every single client that they're going to die because that's true. I couldn't predict when. I could give them a range. Like, you know, you're getting up there, so I'd say you're probably roughly, what's the average life expectancy, like 79 for American women, something like that. So I could I could go way out on a limb and say, all right, Christine, I think that you're 40 years away from death. And statistically, on average, I'd probably be right. And you'd be like, wow, take my money. I'm, I'm just focusing on the fact that you just said on national radio that I'm getting up there. Thank you. Well, it was subtle. I wasn't sure if you were going to notice. I did. I did. Uh, I'll, I'll listen, if you don't want to apologize, I'll, I'll apologize on your behalf. Dude, no, I'm, gonna, I'm good. I'm good. Tatiana, what's your name? Tiana. Tiana? Yeah, I'm good. Yes. Uh, it's it's fine. I'm I'm perfectly comfortable with my take on this situation and on that industry. 
that overall grift in general. Meanwhile, you pointed out this story earlier. It's kind of strange. You've seen this uh, cube of gold sitting in Central Park. It's worth almost $12 million. It's a giant cube of pure gold just sitting there in the middle of the park in New York City. And it has its own, I guess, round-the-clock security team. And number one, I hope that security team is led or the entire team is simply William Devane. I feel like he was made for this because he's Mr. Gold, obviously. I'm curious how you actually protect something like this. I would imagine it's quite heavy, so it would take quite a lot of effort and coordination to thwart the security team. But it's also a $12 million item sitting in the middle of a public area, not protected by all the bells and whistles in sort of extravagant museum setups or anything like that. It's just sitting on the ground there. And I couldn't help but wonder, Christine, if you might be actively plotting, because now that you've gotten a taste for some of the finer things in life in advance of selling your home at a handsome profit, might you be going back to your roots, your original roots as a trained KGB agent and spy and plotting like an Ocean's Eleven style caper here where you guys can go in and pull off the heist. I don't know why I thought of this, but as soon as I heard the story about the $12 million block of gold sitting out in public, within driving distance of your home, I just started to imagine you in a basement crowded around a table with an elaborate scheme underway. Is that happening, or do you not want to say publicly? Now you think I'm a thief? Now you think that I uh, rob people? And first of all, by the way... Well, your mother sort of is, right? You've already talked about how your mother is like sort of a thief with her whole scheme where she returns things that are like 40 years old and returns them for new things and then pretends like she doesn't have them or whatever. So I'm just saying maybe you're taking it to the next level, especially with your sort of intelligence training. Would you... Okay, when you are considering a $12 million heist like this... Are you more like go in with a bunch of muscle and do a smash and grab and just overwhelm them with force? Or are you looking for something more elaborate where there's a diversion that maybe a hologram of the gold and they don't know it's gone? Like which which general approach would you take? I think I would fool them with trickery. I don't think I would just go in, you know, heavy loaded and say, give me the cube. Give me all you got. Which is Well, it might depend on who you have on the team. Right, and who your squad is, who would be on the heist team? Who would you like to have on your heist team? I, I feel like I would not be very good at it. Quiet White is very good at being quiet. He could be, you know what? Wyatt could be a good lookout. But you'd need some muscle. You need some beef. You need some people who could really knock like heads. Tyrus? Tyrus. Maybe Fela, Jimmy Fela. Yeah, you know what? Fela would be good because, and not necessarily the muscle, and don't tell him I said that, but, you know, he he could be the fooling part. Like, he can, you know, crack some jokes, make them laugh as Tyrus and I are running. Right. He's over there entertaining the horseback police in Central Park right. with his jokes. Now, the thing is, I was going to say that Jimmy could drive the getaway car because he was, as he will remind us every day, a cab driver. So he could be the getaway driver in Manhattan, 
But let's be honest. We all know how you're getting away on a pony. Back here tomorrow on the Guy Benson Show from Kansas, Middle America. Can't wait for that. Same time, same place right here. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.